Welcome to the Wagging Tails Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Mobile Canine. Canine behavioural specialists and dog trainers. We provide global online consultations and training, as well as physical training and behavioural rehabilitation within Singapore. Welcome to this episode of the Wagging Tails podcast. I'm briefly going to introduce our guest, Mish Masters, who is a distinguished behaviour consultant and trainer who specialises in Romanian rescue dogs in the UK. Before we go on, I just want to highlight the importance of behavioural rehabilitation and training efforts with the unique challenges involved of working with all street dogs. Like Mish, Jay and I at Noble Canine work very closely with a lot of Southeast Asian street dogs, whether that be jungle dogs in Malaysia, Singapore specials in Singapore, and with Mish, Romanian street dogs being brought into the UK. These dogs are incredibly incredibly amazing animals to have but they do come with some considerations so just as a point before we go on as much as there's going to be so much amazing things spoken about these amazing animals they're not something that you take on lightly lightly you've got to make sure that you're prepared for what's going to happen with regards to looking after caring for rehabilitating and training these wonderful dogs. So, Mish, would you like to give us a little bit more of an introduction and talk about your background in dog training and behaviour consultancy? Hi, Fraser. I would indeed. Thank you very much for inviting me along. It's really awesome to be here and uh, I can chat about Romanian rescue dogs all day long. (laughs) Um, A little bit about my background in dog training in general. I, um, as with most people, my journey started with a, a dog that I was struggling with. She was a rescue uh, German Shepherd, and I called. She was fear aggressive towards people, and I called in some behavioural behaviourists to help me. I'm going back now, twenty five years. Uh, oh. Yeah, twenty five years or so. I called in someone to help me with her, and was very distressed. Uh, and upset and horrified if I'm honest at how what they wanted to do to help my fear aggressor I mean she was terrified um, and they wanted to basically force her um, put a slip lead on her and force her to to go outside and and things like this so I asked them to leave and started reading and I've never basically never stopped I got into the the whole I'm going to do courses and and off I went and that's that's how I got into to be becoming a trainer and working then on behavior cases uh, and as I say that was probably nearly 20 years ago now that I started um, and then the journey into specifically working with the Romanian dogs and it is Romanian and you know a lot of the Eastern European dogs so I work with the Bosnia dogs from Bosnia and Macedonia and um, it is predominantly Romanian but there are other there are other overseas dogs there in the mix um, that journey started uh, probably coming up for 10 years ago and I was duped <laughs> uh, a friend of mine knew that I'd had shepherds my whole life German shepherds my whole life and you know they, they were kind of my dog if you like 
And she had gotten involved with the, the Romanian rescue people at that time. She'd adopted a dog herself. And she knew that I had a training page, a business page. And she said, would I share these dogs to see if I could help raise awareness and, and have, you know, have people see them to foster them or adopt them? And of course, I said I would. And the picture that she sent me, you'll see it all over my websites, is of the, the blonde shepherd dog looking through the bars. He is the most stunning animal. And as soon as she showed me the picture, I was like, you've done this on purpose. <laughs> um, anyway, so I shared him. And then, you know, a week or two later, she came back to me. She said, oh, can we share him again, please? If um, if they can't find anyone to have him in two days, he's going to be put to sleep and, and all of this. And I was like, oh. And then I started to get involved, obviously. I, I started to show an interest and I was looking up and reading up about what was happening in Romania, the situation with the dogs in Romania and was absolutely horrified by it all, of course. Um, and then she got in touch again. And at the time, I was down to one dog. Um, she got in touch again and and said, you know, this dog was a beautiful dog and he had a wonderful, you know, temperament and everything else. And was there any chance I'd be interested in fostering him? <laughs> and obviously, That's how it starts, like, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just oh, well, yeah. I think it was foster. Yeah, I was like, yeah, I will foster him. But my border collie that I had at the time, just not overly comfortable with really big dogs. Uh, but I'll foster him, and and we'll see see what happens. I couldn't think of a reason not to. Do you know what I mean? With my my knowledge and experience, and I was like, I don't yep. see how I can say no. How can I let this dog die when I have you know I can do it? So anyway, I took him. I remember driving to pick him up. Do you know this dog's come off the bus? He was at a kennels. I've never met him. I'm driving to pick up this dirty great shepherd from a foreign country. I know nothing about him. And I was literally driving like, what am I doing? <laughs> I really should know better. Uh, but anyway, he got in the car. Off we went. He came home with me. Um, and he was actually such an easy dog, to be fair. He didn't put a paw wrong the whole time he was there. My border collie predictably was terrified of him. You know, but he never did anything to justify that. He would just be laying in the room, minding his own business, not even looking at her. And she'd be giving him like a really wide berth and walking around the outside of the room. And she wasn't comfortable, but he was a, he was a cracking dog. Absolutely amazing. Uh, anyway, he went off to a home, um, was adopted. Uh, and then obviously I was hooked, wasn't I? I was, I was in the thick of it. I've got stuff coming up on my Facebook feed all the time of these dogs in desperate situations. And it, I remember it was December at the time. And... Um, the lady that I fostered uh, Merlin from, she had she obviously was going to the shelter and and sharing her videos of the shelter and the dogs in the shelters. And there was so many so many puppies in there. And obviously, Romanian winters are severe um, with obviously really really cold temperatures. And and it just kept popping up on my newsfeed how she was saying like oh been to the shelter today and another two puppies have died and then it, the next day it would be another another two puppies have died and I was just sat there sobbing I was like I can't can't stand it and I just I just I was, just send me a puppy just send me send me a puppy any puppy I don't care which one just me one get it out <laughs> um so yeah so anyway she actually ended up sending me two <laughs> that's another story I won't bore you with but um so along came Tramp and his sister um, so I had the two puppies uh, and obviously, long story short, I ended up keeping Tramp. After Tasha was adopted, I was, it's it's hard to let them go with the fostering. Um, and he seemed such a laid back chap. He really duped me completely. He seemed so laid back. Um, so I kept him and, and he has been my biggest teacher. 
So that's how I got into obviously working with the Romanian dogs through him because as I went on my journey with him, started, you know, doing training with him and socialization as such that I do it. Um, nothing seemed to be working the same way as I was, I'd been a trainer and behavior consultant for over 10 <laughs> years. I, you know, the majority of my dogs were reactive dogs or cases that I worked with. I'd had, I don't know, 10 German shepherds in my life up before then. I'd had a real tenacious little Jack Russell Terrier. And yet this, this dog in front of me was literally just flipping me in the finger half the time. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I'd be like trying to, I was like, nothing's working. Nothing I'm doing is working. What? I, I must be a really awful trainer. You're speaking to the right guys here, Mish, because we've been in the exact same position. Yep, yep. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's just standard. And you're like, what am I doing wrong here? Um, and it was at that point. And, and also, I think the other thing for me that was, that really stood out and, and I found hard at the time I didn't feel like I had a relationship with this dog, a real like connection. And obviously, um, all the dogs I'd had before being the, the types of dogs they were, I always had, always had really strong bonds, strong relationships. And I felt like I didn't have a connection with this dog. And it, it really made me just stop everything, slow everything down, stop, sit, think, look, observe, watch, learn more, look deeper into who he was, what he was about, how he um, processed the world why he did the things he did or or not as the case may be um and that's obviously how i got into learning so much more about them and i realized that a lot of rescues were starting to bring these dogs over but they weren't telling anybody what what they were like they weren't even explaining that they can be different to to train or to um acclimate to the world to be honest a lot of the rescuers don't know themselves i mean oh, even exactly. even out here we do a lot of work really closely with the AWGs, the animal welfare groups, and a lot of those guys don't understand the differences between the dogs that come from the jungle or the streets or the industrial sites versus your pedigrees. And uh, it's very, very fascinating to see people become shocked when it doesn't work the same way they're used to. Um, before we go down that route, though, I just would like you to tell us a little bit about what actual, what are the challenges? What are the, what's the situation in Romania and Bosnia and the Eastern European areas, which is uh, making it such a desperate situation for the dogs? And also, I want like all our listeners to just appreciate this moment that Mish is using the term fear aggression. She's not just classifying it as just, you know, general aggression, which I find a lot of people do. And it, it, it annoys me, right? Like, like you don't understand where the aggression comes from. But Mish is directly saying that, oh, you know, this aggression is stemming from fear, which most aggression cases are. So if you can understand that the dog is being aggressive because they're scared, you can help the dog a lot better than just saying, oh, that dog's aggressive. Sure. Yes, because they're struggling you know, uh, trying to hold that thought is, you know, my dog is, is not being difficult or awkward or deliberate. They are struggling. Kind of like humans as well. I mean, just because you've got a human who might be big and have a potential to be dangerous doesn't mean that they're not going to get scared, doesn't mean that they don't need help. And dogs are the exact same. When I look at Athos... Athos is a is a forty kilogram dog, but 
when I first got him, he needed my support. He needed my help. And you hit the nail on the head there. It's one of the most important things that I have personally found is you've got to find a way to create a bond and trust with these dogs first and foremost, because they're not going to do jack for you if they don't trust you. Absolutely. Number one priority. Absolutely. Absolutely. Number one priority. The relationship underpins everything. And if you haven't got that, everything else is, is difficult. It's a struggle. And, and if that dog doesn't trust you, you know, it, it, the journey is so much harder. Uh, and definitely, definitely the priority. A hundred percent. And the, the same is true, actually, of, of what you're saying. Do you know, um, my boy is just shy of 40. He's about 37 kilos. He's a big lad. Um, he has got guardian breed, large guardian breed in him somewhere. So he has those traits. Um, but I know other people will look at him and go, do you know, he's a full on dog and he's got it all going on. But actually, he he's quite affected by a lot of stuff and he can shift quite easily into anxiety. Oh, yeah. um, and I do. I mean, I know how to support him now and, and he's well supported and he doesn't struggle as such. But I'm not, that's not to say he doesn't still kind of go to that place on occasions. And I see that anxiety come out and I know that he needs, you know, my help, not, you know, to be told or ordered to do something. Um, and as a result, I have had a lot of people say to me, like, he's such an amazing dog and he's wonderful this and he's wonderful that. I say, he's not an easy dog. Um, but because obviously <laughs> of how much time I spent really getting to know him, and, and uh, another thing that, that comes out with these dogs a lot is working with who they are. And that is part of that whole relationship thing. You know, you have to get to know who they are and what makes them tick, um, what their individual intrinsic, intrinsic needs are um, mm -hmm. so that you can work with them. Because a lot of so much of it is instinctive. And if you try to work against that, it, it's an uphill struggle. So always trying to work with the instinctive behaviors. And how can I channel into this with my dog to achieve an outcome that is obviously better for us both? I mean, I think that that's such an important point is working with them and, you know, giving the dogs some autonomy. Because a lot of the time people forget this, if you, especially if you've got a dog that's come from the streets. It's not just a case. Some dogs you might just get the genetic behaviours from the streets and that that's important to understand as well but yeah if you've got a dog that's lived even just six months to a year on the streets in the jungle they've had 100 percent autonomy they've got to make every decision for themselves yeah. and all of a sudden people are expecting the dog to do nothing for themselves and yeah. to be told exactly what to do not a chance no. put like 100 percent of their trust into whoever is just adopting them yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that's not an easy ask. I, I see a lot, of, a lot of this, um, like hearing you talk about the Romanian rescue dogs, and of course there's there's a lot of similarities between uh, your street dogs over there and the Singapore specials that we work with here. One main thing is that each dog is different. Like all of them have their beautiful personalities that you just, you, you can't guess what it is. Like like you said, the dog for the first three months could be the most calm, chill dog. And after that, you see <laughs> everything come out and then they start running about. But I think that's the beautiful journey of it. Yeah, 100%. Street 100%. I get asked quite a lot uh, by people. And, and it's a question that actually gets asked quite a lot in my um, Facebook group. Um, they'll say, you know, my dog is arriving next week or in two weeks or whatever. Um, 
what do I what do I need to do when they arrive? And and my answer is, oh, you won't know until they they land. You know, it doesn't exactly. matter what you've seen on the videos in in from the shelter or from the rescue. Um, you know, yes, you you put your basic structure in place. Be prepared for anything and everything, but you can't actually put any kind of structure in place, as I found when I was trying to put together a, a new adopters program. I'm trying to kind of, you know, put it in a structure like, but they might need that bit right now. <laughs> just don't they know need everything. Are gonna arrive. <laughs> Some of them walk in the door like they've been there the whole lives. I mean, and, and that's another thing I'm very conscious of when I'm talking about these dogs is trying not to make, you know, generic sweeping statements by saying, you know, these dogs have all got trauma because they haven't and, and these dogs have all got street dog mentality because not all of them have and these dogs don't like this or they'll be, you'll struggle with this because like I say, some of them, they walk in the door and they're like, yep, I'm all right, thank you and they're fine. Yeah, um, you take over your bed. <laughs> I mean, my, my, my youngest boy, Porthos, so, I mean, say youngest, he's now coming on five, but he uh, he actually lived in the jungle and had to hunt for food. His prey drive, this is why I always laugh and people are like, oh, I've got a terrier. You can't control the prey drive the way you think you can. And I'm like, you can if it's a life or death situation. <laughs> I'll tell you that much, because Porthos <laughs> used to go after monitor lizards. Oh, wow. You know, and th that's a 50-50, you know, split. You don't know who's going to win that one. Oh, so the, the thing is, is you get a level of trust that you need. When you, when you ask your dog to stop what they're doing, yeah, I believe yeah, yeah. that what you're saying is most important. Anyway, Porthos walked through our door as a young dog, and he just felt completely at home. Yeah. Just not a problem at all. And JJ, you will attest to this, but that dog is he's, he's probably one of the most high-energy dogs I've ever come across. Yeah. And that's saying something, because I grew up in the West Southwest of Scotland on farms of border collies. So, <laughs> <laughs> that is a statement, yes. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very big statement. But like, I'll go a 5K jog with Porthos, come back, and the first thing he does is drop a ball at my feet. Time yeah. to play fetch now, Dad. And I'm like... Yeah, no. <laughs> my border collie's like that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I think he's just he's just an oversized Shiba. You know, I think. Although we have no <laughs> idea what he actually is, he looks like that. He acts like that. He's got that cocky attitude about him. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, there's definitely some of that in there. But yeah, yeah. before we go too off base, I do want to just know a little bit about what it's like in the Eastern European countries for these dogs. Why is there such an influx of rescue dogs from these from this area? Um, I think the, the, the problem in Romania is is obviously, as far as I understand it, from, from I haven't done extensive, you know, you know, re research papers and stuff. But as much as I understand it, there was a shift in um, industrialization around in the eighties. A lot of people moved from rural areas to um, cities. The dogs were abandoned and obviously started reproducing quite rapidly. Mm. Um, and then you end up obviously with a, a massive stray dog problem, which the government have handled and and tried to address in a variety of ways. They're you know culling. Um, capturing, putting shelters, or things like that. But obviously, the rescue centres out there, the rescue shelters are not like we're used to here in the UK. Many of them are horrific. Not all of them are horrific, but many of them are horrific conditions for the dogs. The way the dogs are caught is inhumane quite often. Um, for those dogs on the streets, 
obviously, as I'm sure it's similar in, in, in a lot of places, there's injuries from, you know, traffic being on the roads, being in areas that they get abused from locals. Some dogs are kept on chains for years on, on short chains. There's, there's a whole range of, you know, situations and circumstances that these dogs are um, unfortunately put in. A lot of that sounds like it's boiling down to the, the culture yeah. around animal welfare. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A lot of um, people don't realize, like in Singapore as well, <laughs> I've always seen, oh, you know, there's so many more stray dogs now. You see them on the streets. A lot of people don't realize that it's because they have no more homes. Like we, we've yeah. built up so much. We've taken away so much of their natural habitat that they have nowhere else to go. Of course, you're going to see them walking the streets eventually. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've even got that problem with wild boars out here. People are like, oh, there's so many more wild boars now. No, there's not. It's just the that was a tapir. That was a tapir uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, in the park. Yeah, the it's tapir right next was to my place. A park. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. And we've uh, also got the in, the influx of otters now. We've got otters creating gang fights in the streets. Oh which wow! Is crazy. Oh yeah, it's wild. Um, <laughs> if you remind me, I'll send you through a couple of videos. It's crazy. They're oh, amazing yes, animals. I love otters. I love I, otters. I didn't realise exactly how big they could become until when I was walking my boys and we came face to face with them. And I was like, a couple of them are about the same size as like <laughs> orthos. And I was like, hmm, that's a bit intense. Yeah. <laughs> I, t- I tell you what, when you just when you were talking about the way they they capture the dogs and things like that, it made me think of a couple of things. One in I will say this with full honesty, but a lot of people don't like when you tell the truth like this. Singapore's not got the best animal welfare culture itself. It's a developed country which has some certain areas lacking, and animal welfare is definitely one of them. And as a result, the way people treat some animals is just terrible, um, as well as the way they sometimes do the trapping and things like that. It's not great. But the other thing that made me think about that is when you've got an influx of stray dogs or street dogs or jungle dogs, whatever you want to call them, the dogs that are going to be trapped, neutered and released, the dogs are going to be trapped and rehomed, the dogs are going to be culled, these are the dogs that are more willing to approach. And as a result, it leaves the dogs out there who are more genetically disposed to run, which means you're effectively getting um, an increased feral behaviour from these dogs generation on generation. And a lot of people get a wee bit funny about that, but I can tell you right now, the behaviour from when I first started working with these street dogs versus now, it's a marked difference. And that's only been about 10 years. Yeah. You know, no, so it definitely it has an impact on that evolutionary process because you're, you're like you say you are leaving the dogs behind who are more wary of humans and therefore more likely to be aggressive towards humans yep. uh, and those are the ones that are going on to, to reproduce the, the the next generations and and yeah. they're you know so on and so on so yeah it definitely definitely has an impact but at the same time we've also got to remember that they are domestic dogs these are not wild canines no no no, you know, no. and a lot of people they either go one way or the other. They can't really yeah. seem to figure <laughs> yeah, out. It's either, they're exactly the same as all the other dogs, or they're like crazy wild animals that are, are not yeah. domesticated at all. 
I mean, let, let's be honest. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't invite a full-blown grey wolf into my house. No. <laughs> I, mean, I might. <laughs> for a start, they're a lot bigger than you might think, Jay. Yeah. I, yeah. Know, I know. <laughs> Those things are, are terrifying. I'll invite one into my home, but then I'll move out. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> you can take my place. To be fair, you could be a crazy bugger like Mike Tyson and invite tigers into your home. <laughs> yeah. I mean, oof. But <laughs> just because we're, we're talking about the genetic elements there, and you've also got the genetic elements of the breed types that they come from, which obviously, from what you were saying, you've got a lot of shepherd and livestock guarding breeds and things like that. Yeah. Um, what we've got out in Singapore is a lot of not just pet dogs, but a little nice wee interesting fact is when the Japanese landed in Singapore during the Second World War, all of the Allied force dog handlers released the dogs out into the wild because That's they didn't fine. want the dogs to be culled by the Japanese. Right. So that means you've got a lot of shepherds, you've got a lot of garden breeds, you've got a lot of working breed dogs mixed in with the Southeast Asian street dogs, mixed yep. in with the dogs that have been abandoned by people. So you've got a real interesting mix of like um, like the more sort of prestigious pet dogs like Chow Chows and Shiba Inus and Akitas and things like that. And then you've got more yep. of the working dogs like your Shepherds, your Malmois, your your, your Labs, um, Rotties, your Dobermans and things like that. So you get a lot of really interesting black and tan sort of things going on, but you also get that guarding element in there quite a lot as well, yeah. which a lot of people don't know how to handle. Yeah. Which is yeah. Uh, interesting. But and I think as well, if the dogs don't kind of look, especially with the Romanian dogs, because they, they literally come in all different weird shapes and sizes yeah. and looks. And, and I mean, yes, a lot of them have got the, the, the Guardian breeds in them, and there are a lot of, you know, closely resembling guardian breed mixes that come over the Meritics and the Carpathians. If the dog doesn't look like a guardian breed, they don't necessarily, obviously, then attribute the way the dog is behaving, behaving to that kind of character trait, if you like. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's kind of what we were talking about before we hit record. Don't judge a book by its cover. Oh uh, yeah, 100%. 100%. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, that that's a good point as well is um a lot of these dogs don't look like your typical breeds, so people don't attribute uh, any of the breed behaviors to them. And also an important factor is is that we are talking about genetics and breed traits and things like that, but it's all guesswork. Oh, gosh, yeah. <laughs> you've got no idea. So it's exactly what you were saying earlier. Until you've actually spent time with the dog, you've got no idea how they're going to behave. No. And even if even if you have got an inkling of, of you know, what's in there, I mean, I've got an inkling of, of what's in my boy based on, you know, who he is and how he is and, and how he responds to the world around him and things like that. But even if you do look at the dog and there is, you know, some semblance of a breed in there, um, you know, each one of those is individual anyway. So it yeah. is very much about, you know, just stop and look at who you have in front of you. Ask the questions that will give you the answers to who they are, how they are, what things matter to them, what things bother them, all that kind of stuff. Um, so that, again, you can work with them to, to you know, progress to living your best life together with that relationship that supports both sides. You know, it's not just about the dog, obviously, but it, 
um, predominantly if the dog is not happy, it causes a lot of unhappiness in the humans. <laughs> and vice versa. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, I mean, we're talking about the genetic stuff there, and I love that stuff. That's the sort of dangerous stuff to talk to me about because I could go down the rabbit hole and just get lost yeah. in yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but we've also got – so that's nature. Now we're going to be talking about nurture. Now, before yep. we do this, I want people – I want the listeners to understand there's no such thing as nature versus nurture. It's nature and nurture. Both sides of the coin – make up the animal that goes for human beings that goes for any animal on the planet well any mammal on the planet i'm pretty sure that a lot of insects don't really care what's <laughs> happened to them in the past but all of us got to think about is the background and the potential trauma that some dogs have faced whether it be from from the way they were trapped we are working with a dog right now who they trapped because he was in a very dangerous situation right up north where there's, to be honest, quite some dangerous animals in Singapore up north in the, the more rural areas. There's actually crocodiles and like not, not big, big cats, but there's like fishing cats and things like that. We say not big cats. We're talking about a four foot long cat. That's a big cat, but <laughs> big it's, not, cat, it's, yeah. it's not like a tiger. <laughs> the last the last tiger was gone in Singapore a long time ago. A lot of people will be thinking of the stories from Raffles Bar. Unfortunately, guys, that's a myth. The tiger was not shot under the pool table in the officers' club. <laughs> but um, this is a very important aspect, and I'm sure you'll agree with me when I say this. We can have a, a good idea of what a dog has gone through before we've laid hands on them, but we don't know for certain. But it doesn't mean we ignore the potential learned behaviour from that dog. Absolutely. So with, with, our, with our side of things, with the Singapore dogs and with the Southeast Asian dogs, you've got a lot of, um, like there's unfortunately some, er some areas of the culture where people will like chase off the dogs, throw things at the dogs, kick them out of the way, things like that. Then you've got poor trapping methods, um, and then even once they've been adopted, they can end up in a poor home. Unfortunately, out here, you've still got a lot of corporal punishment. And, and because that's still inflicted on humans, obviously humans are still going to inflict that on their animals to a much higher degree than they would do in a country where it's illegal. Um, is yeah. Eastern, Eastern European countries somewhat similar? I mean, pretty much it's, it's basically the same. Um, there are areas where the dogs are... Um, less or you know that some of the villagers they will feed the dogs you know they, they they don't see them as troublesome or um a problem as such so there are still i believe pockets of, of places that are like that mm -hmm. um but still even though those dogs are not causing a problem to anybody um i i've seen many a story shared by you know the the rescuers living out in romania whereby the, the dog catchers would just rock up and, and round them up yeah uh, even though they weren't a problem for the area they were being fed by the the villagers um they will still go and and take them obviously um but yeah it's pretty much the same i think there is you know a high level of abuse in a lot of areas the way they're caught is obviously on a pole on a catcher pole like you say is you can't always know what trauma they've been through um 
a lot of people will say to me, you know, clients and members that I work with will say, you know, well, they kind of almost automatically believe their dog has had all the trauma and all the abuse. Um, but, you know, they may not have. But I think it's important to be aware of the potential for that to be in there um, always. And that way you take things steadily and you ask the important questions. You don't just steam in and assume this dog is, is going to be okay with whatever you want to do with it or to it or things yeah. like that. If, if you're approaching a dog and, and you're trying to reach your hand out, not that you should, you're trying to reach your hand out to pet the dog and the dog starts growling and then people just ignore it and then you just still want to pet the dog and after they get bitten, they're like, oh my God, the dog's aggressive. He bit me. <laughs> <laughs> and then you're just like, why are you ignoring all the signs? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to lie. If somebody tried to touch my face and I hadn't been introduced to them, chances are I'm going to bite them as well. Absolutely. Me too. And I use that analogy all the time with people, you know, um, and to, to kind of get the point across of how intimately intrusive it is to touch a dog that you don't know and that doesn't know you. You know, even when, when I'm working with clients and when I used to work in person with clients, I would never, unless the dog was literally mobbing me, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't even interact with them to start with. I would just speak to the people and let the dog gather all the information that it wanted to gather and, you know, move around me. But I would never just reach down and start giving it a big fuss or trying to touch it and, and things like that. How intimate that is. They just expect the dog to be okay with being touched. Dog trainers and, and behaviorists, right? I think that's a common misconception that people have that, oh, my trainer doesn't dare, doesn't touch my dog, doesn't interact with my dog. But that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed yeah. to let the dog um, show you that it's comfortable enough. If, if my client's dog, like you said, starts running out, jumping up on me, and I know that, okay, you're, you're fine, you're fine. I'll give it a bit of attention. Yeah. But then I've seen some people say, oh, you know what? Yeah, this trainer doesn't doesn't interact with my dog at all. I don't think he's a good trainer. <laughs> the majority of, you know, the dogs, if I were to be working in person with them, the majority of these dogs are naturally not necessarily wary, but they're not, you know, they're, they're like you or I. If we meet someone in the street, a stranger, we don't automatically shift into hugging them and kissing them. You know, we, we, yeah. we stand apart. We'll have a conversation. Um, ask some questions, get to know people, and, and then you progress on to that level of things. Do you know what I mean? Unless um, I'm drunk. <laughs> well, <laughs> and I always feel like, you know, these dogs, their their social skills are often ex just excellent. Do you know what I mean? The way they um, communicate with their own species and other species, including us, um, for me is far more, uh, it's a lot clearer. I find them a lot clearer in their communication as long as you know what you're looking for, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Just just to touch on that really quickly, it's 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 also another big mis misconception, isn't it? That people say that, oh, this dog is standoffish, ignores the, all other dogs, and they assume that this dog is not well socialized. Yeah, no, that's but a actually good that dog skill. is yeah, that is a very important social skill. A lot of people Absolutely. think that a well socialized dog must be able to play with every single dog and every single person. But no, that's the socially awkward dog. <laughs> that's exactly. the dog that, that's the person that runs up and hugs you, picks you up if you just <laughs> met them for the first time. <laughs> yep. Well that, that's the analogy we always use is that how would it feel if I ran up to you and just gave you a huge hug and picked you up? Would yeah, I be well exactly. socialized? No, not really. Exactly. Exactly. That, that's uh, that's something I always think about is that people always think that these street dogs are the ones that need more socialization. And yes, of course they do, but not in a social setting. It's socialization in the way that they need to, 
They need help to acclimatize to a more human environment. But For me, it's much more about habituation. I use the word yes, habituation. That's a good word to use. I like that. Because socialization does everybody, unless they're knowledgeable in terms of dogs and, and socialization itself, will go, oh, my dog needs to meet lots of people, lots of dogs, do lots of things, busy, 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 let's socialize, socialize, socialize. And you're like, yeah. I always use habituation over socialization because I, I find that then you could, I don't have to go into the whole explanation of what socialize socialization is and isn't do you know what i mean makes perfect sense yeah no I, I do really like that yeah so i mean that leads us really nicely into what kind of behavioral assessments do you ask for or do when you're working with a client or when you're doing an individualized training plan for a client um as in like the process that yeah I work through. yeah um, it's very much, I mean, as I mentioned to you, I think we were, it was before the call. Um, I work entirely remotely with my clients. They are either in my coaching group or all over the country. It's not very often I have someone come up who is local enough to be to work in person. Um, but having said that, it works really, really well with, you know, the, the dogs that I work with because the majority of them aren't comfortable with strangers. So obviously working remotely is actually better for them. A lot of them are fearful which means working remotely is better for them as well. Um, and in terms of how, because I work remotely, I, I gather a lot of video, obviously, data from, from my clients and members. Um, I find that is actually invaluable, not just to me in terms of doing behavioral assessments, but in terms of my clients being able to watch it and go, oh, I can see what you're saying. Because, you know, when when things happen in the moment in real life, most of the time people miss them but mm. i can take a video and i can show them you know they've taken a video of, me, of their fearful dog uh, and they're walking past it and i can play them that video back and slow it down and caption it. i say look at what he's doing here look at what he's doing here and they get to really see firsthand what they're looking for in day-to-day -day life do you know what i mean yeah um so it actually works really really well i mean generally my my assessments are you know holistic in in terms of, um, obviously, I'm going to go through the behaviours that are, are causing problems, if you like, um, but I'll be assessing and working through with behaviour, emotional well-being, um, lifestyle. Routine is a huge one for these dogs. Mm -hmm. and That's confidence, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the whole spectrum of nuanced contributing factors um, is all taken into account during during the assessment and then obviously the the plan is put together off of the back of that uh, it always it always comes out initially dialing things back the majority of people are having problems because they've done too much too soon too big environmental overwhelm no consistency dog doesn't really understand what it's supposed to do when where or how um so we end up generally we dial things back there's nearly always a stress reduction program put in place quite quickly which gets everybody some nice relief going on and then it's about resetting and then rebuilding with the dog confidence resilience their own um coping skills if you like as opposed to any kind of training or obedience it's more about the coping skills for them um, mm. And then obviously, then we go back to that gradual expansion back with all, all that in place kind of thing. 
if if you were to pick out some of the most common behavioral challenges that you see in a lot of your Romanian rescue dogs, what would you say they are? Uh, the majority, <laughs> I do, I do actually, because um, I, I run a trainer program, and I do, I do say in there, and I say to the, the trainers that I work with. Before I got involved with Romanian dogs, and I used to work, as I say, I used to work with a lot of dogs that were reactive on walks to other dogs and things like that. Um, and before I got involved with these dogs, generally people coming to me for help would have what I class as one of the big problems. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. So big problems, reactive on walks, reactivity to visitors, um, reactivity to family members. Doesn't come, didn't come up very often prior to meeting these dogs. Uh, resource guarding, separate. They're, those to me are the big problems. Do you know what I mean? And, and, yeah. you know, I used to work, you know, the dog would have one of those kind of things going on that we would be focusing on and then just maybe some little stuff, you know, a bit of mouthing here and there or whatever. Uh, a lot of these dogs have three, four, five of these things going on. All at once. Normally, right? So I, I guess we can say that it's a worldwide thing. <laughs> they are uncomfortable with visitors in the house. They are shouting at dogs and, and everybody on walks. They're probably uncomfortable with someone and doing a bit of resource guarding as well, you know, so... Um, but those are the, the most common ones is is the overreactivity in terms of things outside the home, dogs, traffic. Um, a lot of them are uncomfortable with strangers coming into the home. Of course. Of course. Um, there is quite, uh, not not as common, but there is quite a lot of people. I suppose it is because it's such a difficult thing to live with. I get a lot of people reach out for help um, for dogs who are, behaving you know barking lunging snapping and in some cases biting at family members living in the home um quite often they'll they'll arrive and over attach to one person and then um they've only got to have the i don't know about if this is true with with your dogs over there as well but certainly with these dogs and again for me it, it's part of an instinctive um package if you like You've only got to do something wrong once and, and, and do something that creates that fear response or panic response. And that's it. Then you're, you're lost. Is gone. You are a bad person. You're a dangerous person. I do not like you. Don't ever come near me again. So they, yep. do you know what I mean? When people are unaware of the right way to help transition them into the home and they do something wrong and the dog's got it, then it's like, I don't you know, like you. And that can obviously cause problems. Um, resource guarding for obvious reasons as well can come up quite frequently. Yeah, and some people don't realize that um, the dog can see the person as a resource as well. <laughs> the attention oh, gosh, person. And spaces. Spaces are always one that does confuse mm -hmm. people as well when the dog is a resource guarding a space. Also, like, I, I completely understand about doing one mistake and then the dog just sees you as a threat. We don't get to decide whether <laughs> we become a threat in the dog's eyes or not. Like, someone could be in the home and they accidentally drop a pot. And then bam, that's it. <laughs> that's it. That dog, that dog will not go near you. Yeah, yeah. I think that's that's a similarity amongst all of the uh, this rescue dogs, actually. Yeah. And I mean, it doesn't even need to be something that you did. Um, I was working with a dog not so long ago, and I ended up having to hand the client over to Jay because as the dog was interacting with me, he tripped over and fell off the ottoman. In the living room, and that was it. I was the I was the bad guy. He was the no, cause of it. I was the cause because yeah, the dog was just there. <laughs> there. There's no point in trying to fight that, especially when you've got options to do it a different way. 
Absolutely. It's going to be done the, the most. The, the path of least resistance is always the best way with any dog, but especially with these dogs. Definitely, yeah. Definitely. The best way to approach is, is the way we tell our clients is that, especially with your rescue dogs, you need an ungodly amount of patience. Like you can't rush anything. You 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 can't say that. Oh, you know what? I need to get get my dog over their fear of strangers by this weekend because I'm going to have a party. No, that's not the way it works. No, so patient, consistency, and of course, we always use positive reinforcement with yeah. that. Yeah, hundred percent. Consistency and routine can go a huge way, and in, in just like I say, when when people are coming to me and they've got a, a real complex mishmash of things going on, like we. The dogs are, are, are barking, lunging outside the home, barking, lunging inside the home, um, maybe some resource guarding as well. That consistency, that predictability, that routine uh, can go a long way to just bringing things levels down in all the areas at once. Do you know what I mean? Definitely. And it works really well, well with most of these dogs because obviously the predictability um, generates that sense of safety for them. So I know what's happening now. I don't need to worry about it. It's not, they're not using so much energy having to try and process and figure stuff out all the time. I know this is happening next and that's what happens when we do this. And they can actually then relax into it, which obviously is, gives us a lot more headspace to work with. Absolutely. I mean, one of the biggest strategies that we find works really well is, uh, is the trust building aspect. Yep. And um, we do a lot of concept exercises for that. Um, the, the analogy I always use is if, so like the analogy I use specifically would be, okay, Mish, if you and I are walking through a park at night and you see a group of men at the bottom of the path and you turn to me and trying to tell me, Fraser, I'm a bit nervous about going past these guys. There's three ways I can respond to that. One, I could just say, Shut up, Misha, you're fine. <laughs> how would that make That'll you feel? Well. <laughs> you know? But the thing is, is that's how a lot of people talk to their dogs. Their dogs try to tell them yeah. that they're yeah. scared, and they just tell them to shut up. Yeah. Then you can Absolutely. go to the other extreme. You tell me that you're feeling scared, and I go, oh, don't worry, Misha, you're such a good <laughs> girl. You're so amazing. You're the best girl in the whole world. Yes, you are. Is that going to make you feel safe? No. <laughs> yeah, of course not. And these are the two extremes. And again, like we were talking about, people don't see the middle ground. Yeah. Okay? So a lot of the time when I talk about trust and bonding, it has to come from a place of appropriate and good leadership. And the reason I say leadership is because I don't like talking about alphas and any of that bollocks. <laughs> yeah. But um being a leader is very important. You've got to be a leader to your family. You've got to be a leader yeah. to your dogs. You've got to be a leader to your staff. You know, these, these things happen at sports teams, you name it. So to do this, if I'd said, if you say the same thing, Fraser, I'm not happy about this. And I say, Mish, I understand. I'm sorry you're feeling scared, but you've got to listen to me right now. I need you to walk in my left so I'm between you and those guys. If you get scared, you can squeeze my arm, but do not panic. Do not run. Do not shout. Do you understand? Let's go. Yeah. You know, and so you've got to have a little bit of firmness so that they understand what's going on. And you've got to make sure that you've got enough 
wits about you. You understand what they're telling you enough so that you can respond appropriately because a lot of people will misunderstand what's going on. But to get to that point, you've got to get that trust there because as much as I do agree that routine is very important, the problem with routine is that it doesn't always work out the way you want it to. Yeah. Sometimes you're late. Sometimes there's a... There's somebody walking in. Well, yeah, I don't mean this as an extended, you know, I mean establishing some structure up front to yes. get the confidence going, to get some resilience, uh, to get, yeah, some confidence, some trust, and some that sense of safety. But once they're in that place, then you can start building in the behavioral flexibility. Great. But yeah. if yes. you just try and do that up front, do you know what I mean? It, it, it no, doesn't would, always yeah. help them, if you like. Do you know what I mean? Which is exactly why we start with the routine and concept exercises. Because if you went straight into the behavioural flexibility, it would overwhelm them and they'd end up flooded. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and that's not going to help anybody. If they if they don't feel safe and if they don't trust you, which can only come with a bit of time to build a relationship, yeah. they're not going to listen. The no. same as I wouldn't listen to you if I had no trust in you. Of I'd course. be like, you know what, Fraser? I don't trust what you're saying. I'm just going to do what I think is right. <laughs> yeah, you've got to earn that trust. Absolutely. It's- Especially when you're dealing with, you know, the, the dogs who have that high level of independence, the guardian breeds, the dogs that have been on the streets, yep. um, they are far more likely to go, nope, this is what I'm doing because I know it works. Yeah. Uh, rather than take a breath and go, mum's got it, dad's got it, whoever's got it, whatever you want to call the person. Well, I mean, And I think a lot of it is about confidence as well. You know, you said about that firmness of taking control. For me, I, I tend to use the word confidence. It's about you showing you are confident in this situation. You've got it. You're dealing with it. Let's do what I've said. Well, you step up, don't you? That's exactly. I mean, I actually talk about the four C's, which I stole directly from corporate leadership training, by the way. I do not hide that at all. <laughs> I, I used to conduct corporate leadership training back in a different life. So I've not <laughs> changed that section. All I did was change the logo. Um, <laughs> but effectively, it's you've got to be confident. You've got to be clear. Oh, you've yes. Got, you've got to be consistent. Yep. And you've got to be calm. Yeah, spot on. And if you've not got those four things, you're not a very good leader. Spot on, yeah. These dogs will will definitely get on board with that. Yeah, absolutely. So with all of that, because I think we've covered quite a lot of good stuff there, Mish, um, is there any other strategies or rehabilitation techniques that you want to share? <laughs> with the super fearful dogs, I mean, I do get quite a lot of what I call top of the tree fear dogs you know hiding in corners not coming out for a long time or hiding in under tables and things um one of the thing i uh, you know it, it seems obvious and to, to me um but it, just ignoring them completely ignoring them going about the day establishing the, the routine for them but other than that not really having very much to do with them at all obviously you've got the whole safe space you, this is your safe space i will you know won't encroach on that and trying to get people to actually ignore their dogs seems to be really difficult. They want to talk to them, and, and in talking to them, they're looking at them, and you can just see the dogs going, why are you doing that to me? <laughs> yeah. And it's like, just ignore, just pretend they're not there. Just go about your day, pop the food down, walk away. Um, so, yeah, that that ignoring for the, for the super fearful dogs, they tend to then be, move forward quicker in terms of, okay, I feel quite safe now because everybody stopped looking at me and talking to me. I'm going to poke my head out and be a bit curious. And then as soon as that curiosity part starts, they can kind of get a little bit of a roll on with that. 
uh, but it's just those that instant you know when they first arrive and they're they're sitting there they've been through a, a hideous ordeal they've been on a bus for two days they've been taken away from everything they know and people just want to at them do you know what i mean i'm like just ignore them just get them in the room mm-hmm. food water toilet and then just give them a breathing space and and see what happens so that's really important a big part of what I do up front with people when I work with them is the whole body language piece, understanding the canine communication system, because these dogs are clear with their communication. But having said that, they can be quite stoic, so it's subtle. You have to know what you're looking for. You have to be tuned into it. So I do a lot of stuff around body language, communication, and, and as much as possible using these dogs um, so people can look and see what is happening when it's happening. And I do tend to get people, especially with, well, with all of them really reactive, fearful. Um, Suzanne Clothier's elemental questions, one of her elemental questions is, how is this for you? So whenever they're doing the interaction, especially with the fearful dogs, um, but whatever they're doing with them, hold this question. How is this for you? Ask your dog the question. And that I find really helps my clients, A, to stop and ask the question. B, they look at the dog for the answer. So then you get that observation piece. But then also, it naturally gets them to slow down a little bit. Rather than me just saying, just just slow down, take things a bit slower, just doing that process of, right, you're going to ask your dog, how is this for you? Look for the answer. What are they telling you? And that automatically just kind of naturally slows the process. And I find that works really well with these dogs yeah, because of they're so astutely tuned into their environment to us, to our behavior, to what we're doing with our bodies. Um, I find that that can be really helpful in getting people to pay attention, be ob- better observationalists and um, sl- slow down. So I, I really like that because what we use, and, and what we use is good too, don't get me wrong before I say this, but <laughs> we use it from, a, it's actually from the Victoria Stillwell way of thinking with, um, you always asked four questions. What are your wants? What are your needs? What are the dog wants? What's the dog needs? And then finding a bridging gap to that. But asking a client to continuously think about those four is a lot. So I really like the way that you're just saying, how is it for you? You're asking your dog. That's that's a really direct and simplified way of doing it. And I think that's really effective. It must be really effective for the client as well because they're not needing to think about too much. They're, They're just asking that one question. And looking for the answer. Exactly. Okay, so we could literally sit and talk about this. I know we could. <laughs> all day. I'm very sure we could. Yeah. But um, what I do want to ask is, if for those listening that are in the UK, if they were thinking of adopting a Romanian rescue dog, um, how would they go about getting in touch with any of the charities? Is there specific charities that you work with or are affiliated with? I am patron of two charities. I'm patron of Cloud Canine, who um, work predominantly by bringing the dogs all come over and go into foster homes first, which is a policy that I do highly agree with because Mm -hmm. then someone is doing an assessment of them in this country, in a home with all the stuff around them, with other dogs and if necessary, cats, people, children or whatever before they're then matching them with people because the matching process is so critical. Yes. Um, uh, It can make or break, you know, that getting it wrong in that matching process can literally make or break the adoption no matter what else goes on so Mm -hmm. i do love the foster 
you know, the foster first. But having said that, again, like I say, I, I don't really don't like to make generically sweeping statements about anything because I know I know hundreds of dogs that have come straight off the bus, straight into a home and, and been absolutely fine. Everyone's been absolutely fine. So it's not it's not a guarantee even. I know a lot of dogs that have come from UK fosters and, and it still hasn't worked out. But generally, I do like the fact that people can obviously meet the dogs first and make sure that it's a right, it's a good fit. I do find one of an article I wrote about. I do. I feel like choosing the dogs can be a bit like online dating. People are looking at the pictures that the charities are sharing <laughs> of the dogs, and they and they are choosing their dogs based on looks alone. Do you know what I mean? It's like, oh my god, I've fallen in love with this dog, and then obviously over the period of the adoption, which can be six, eight weeks, however long. They get to know the dog and the rescues will send them videos and they're already in love with the dog before it's even arrived. Anyone who's done online dating will know you get invested before you even meet the people. And then <laughs> when they arrive, your expectations are just like all over the place. It's up here. It's going to be like, it's going to be wonderful. And then we're going to do this. We're going to do that. And then, you know, the dog walks in the door and it's so terrified. It wants to hide in the corner for six months and everybody struggles and it's disappointing and, and stuff like that. So, um, so yeah, I think choosing the right dog in the first place is, is absolutely really, really important. Important point, actually. I'm, uh, to be honest, I'm really glad that my wife didn't choose me based on looks because she would never have chosen me. Um, but uh, I, I actually, just to say, based on that, that story I've just shared, interestingly, I had, uh, was it six, five or six foster dogs over the course of a year or so? And I deliberately chose Tramp because I was fairly certain I wouldn't want to keep him. <laughs> <laughs> so that all went wrong. <laughs> I suppose there's a lot of stories about online dating like that as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but one thing you touched on there is, is as much as I don't like to pinpoint like certain animal welfare groups being better than others, there is certain welfare groups that we work with very closely here. There's welfare groups that we will work with if approached. And if I'm honest, there's a couple of welfare groups that I won't work with, regardless of what they say. Yeah. Um, and a lot of that boils down to the rehoming process, because if they're not honest yeah. with themselves, let alone the potential adopters, you can be putting the dog and the potential adopters in a very dangerous situation. 100%. So that's something that I always feel very, very um, strongly about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it is a, a, a critical part of anyone, for anyone who is considering adopting um, one of these dogs, you know, heavily research the rescue. You know, if you've seen a dog that you like the look of, you need, to, and, and, you know, even if it looks like it's a good fit, the need to research the rescue there are a lot of them now mm -hmm. an awful lot of them um and as with anything as you said there are a lot of them that are fantastic brilliant amazing um there are some that are not yeah uh, so sure. it is really important to to make sure that you research the rescue the way you know research how they transport the dogs um whether they offer rescue backup what their policies are um and, and make sure they do their homework on them Absolutely. Um, definitely. Whatever, um, whatever considerations with regards to responsibilities, rehabilitation, training, care for um, the dogs like the remaining rescue dogs, would you like to highlight to somebody that would be considering? 
again, I think I, I've. It's really hard because I want to always make people aware of the possibles. This could possibly happen. This could possibly happen. But I want to try and I'm tr always trying to do it really carefully because at the same time I don't want to put people off. <clears throat> but I want them to have an awareness of you know this dog will potentially be like this when it arrives or it will potentially do that after two or three months or you might have this problem come up but again I try never to make a sweeping statement because you might not <laughs> yeah. um I can't I can never say how any dog will you know I've, I've got a lady I'm working with at the moment and and the dog in the shelter is confident is bouncing around is jumping all over the people is happy as Larry as Larry um but then when he came over it's taken you know seven eight nine months um he hasn't even been outside the house yet He's that fearful and traumatised. Just to jump in a little bit there, because I really like that point. Sometimes that happens just because of the situation. And a lot of these potential adopters get demonised. Yeah, no, the rescuers would have no idea that was going to happen. Yeah. Well, the rescuers yeah. have no idea that's going to happen. But at the same time, the rescuers can't blame the adopter. because. No. The doctor had no idea that was going to happen either. Exactly, exactly. No, it, it's very difficult. It, Sometimes it's very these difficult. things just happen. And people have, that's, an, that's what I'm saying about doing some research and having some understanding of the possibilities so that yes. you have, you are prepared for well, the possibility of something or not. I, I could say with, well, I can say with 100% certainty, and the next part I could say with probably about 80% certainty. I know that Jay and I, between us, have got five street dogs and every single one of them is completely different. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, and I'm sure, sure if we had your guys in there as well, it'd be the exact yeah. same. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> you know, so everything, everything we've spoken about is very important to take into consideration. But they are individuals, as you say. Yeah, every single one, definitely. So it, it's, a, it's a very, um, it's a great topic. And to be honest, I, I would love to continue this until midnight, but um, it just it wouldn't be very, you know, a lot of listeners might lose interest if we did that, <laughs> especially if we start geeking out. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I just really want to thank you for agreeing to be on and sharing your expertise with you, with us, because I always feel like like I I seem like a broken record when I talk about the street dogs and. A lot of people I speak to, especially back home in the UK, they don't quite get the difference, you know. And like even when I speak to family members, I mean, I grew up around dogs. I grew up around working dogs as well. And a lot of people are like, oh, don't worry, I know dogs. But when they come over to visit me, I'm like, I understand that we grew up with dogs. I understand that you're good with dogs. Be, be prepared. These guys are not the same. They're not Labradors, they're not Collies, they're, 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 they're slightly different. And it's nice to know that there are people in the UK that appreciate that and there are people that are experts in that. So I really want to, to just express my gratitude for, for doing what you do and for making sure that you are helping people in the UK that need this kind of help because a lot of the trainers I've spoken to in the UK, they've got no idea of the differences either. And, and, it's, and it's not their fault. You don't know what you don't know. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's one of the reasons why I set up my trainer program. Mm. Uh, you know, I was creating content and material and, and programs for the adopters. And, and like you say, I was coming up, I, I was struggling to, to take people on to help them. I, was like, I need to find people that can help me, professionals that can help me with people in different areas. 
and I was struggling to find, I mean, there are quite probably more than you realize trainers in the UK who won't actually even work with these dogs because they're too complex. Over here as well. Yeah, over here as well. One of the best behaviorists that I've met, and I'll just say this with clear honesty, when I have a conversation with this person, he blows my knowledge out of the water without a doubt, but he refuses to work with street dogs. Yeah. Because it brings down his success rate. Yep. You yep. know? And it's just a horrible truth, but it is what it is. And they, they, are, they are a challenge, without a doubt. Oh, um, for they, sure. They, they can be a challenge, put it that way. They can be a challenge just in terms of, you know, the complexities and because of who they are and how they are. You, you'll probably agree with this, but you need to understand the behaviour and the psychology a little bit more yeah. because your basic balanced training that I'm sure 30 years ago you probably did the same thing. I know previous to doing my journey, I, I used to train that way before crossing over. And I um, was lucky enough to come into training when it was already in the shift, so oh. I was probably one of the earliest people i mean when i when i did my studies nothing none of the companies that do it now even existed victoria stillwell imdt none of them even existed to be honest but i was taught clicker training um and and all that so i was really lucky i think i came in on the cusp of the change so i was very very lucky lucky. i mean positive reinforcement one of my biggest biggest regrets in life is when I first did my studies, which, like I say, was nearly 20 years ago now, um, I didn't, I, I, I had a child, I was a single parent, had a child at the time, and I was too worried about becoming a full-time, a trainer as a full-time business because I didn't believe I would be able to support myself. So I never kind of went, I just did it as a, a hobby business on the side kind of thing. And mm-hmm. I, I very much regret that because I would have been, you know, right there in the early days of that positive reinforcement shift um and i could have made some big big noise about it but yeah. never mind i'm here now <laughs> well, no, no regrets Every, tw- no 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 you know, it's not 2020 hindsight that's what it's called yeah yeah but, but thank you very much for inviting me it's been great it's been really great to talk to you both oh, no it's been fantastic talking to you as well and just before we go all i'd like you to do is provide the listeners with your social media your contact how they can reach out to work with you because i'm sure there's some people in the uk listening that need this kind of help so how would they get in touch with you and of course we'll share all of this in the show notes as well yeah sure i mean obviously i've got my website which is the dog's point of view.com i have a big community facebook group um which is actually under my name because um, that was how I set it up and it it grew quite quickly and then I had too many members to change the name. (laughs) So that's actually under um, Mish Masters, I think it is, but I can give you the link for that. Um, Actually, though, that link you've got, I think is right, but the the group is called Mish Masters. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I've got a a coaching group and a doctor's coaching group that I run, which is a membership that people can come in and that's full of resources that, you know all the stuff I've shared today, and, and a whole lot more in terms of um, working through struggles and difficulties, and, and helping obviously people in the group. Um, you've already got my Instagram and YouTube on there. They've got bits and pieces. And I'm not massive on Instagram or YouTube, but they've got bits and bobs on there. And I 
try and do more. <laughs> I can appreciate um, that. But yeah, most people, um, most people reach out to me via, you know, my Facebook pages. I've got a business page as well. Um, or they come to me via the website. There's a form on my website that people can fill in to speak to me. And I do have just, you know, standalone online courses as well that people can go and just do do on their own. They don't have to necessarily get in touch. So there's great. lots of ways to get access to the information. Yeah, that's fantastic. Okay, so we'll make sure that we've got all of that in the show notes. And again, just a big thank you for coming on. And just before we go, I just want to remind everybody that every Wednesday at 1 p.m. UK time, that's 8 p.m. Singapore time. And if you want to watch or do this from anywhere in the world, I'm sure you can figure that out what time it is. <laughs> we do a live Ask Me Anything Facebook session where people can jump on and ask any questions about behaviour or training. So please, please feel free to do that. Um, we also want to share our discount code which will give you a 5% discount off of your initial consultations with Noble Canine. If the end of the initial consultation form, you just type in the word blue, B-L-U-E, that will be applied onto your consultation. And last but not least, please stay tuned for our next episode, which is going to be our third installment on aggression so this is going to be a good one so please look out for that and join us for that episode once again mish thank you very much thank for being so on. much mish thank really you for having it. me it's been great and we will talk to all of the listeners again soon